We've continued to express the idea of discipleship through the symbols. If you haven't seen on the back of the, the shirts, there's an upward, inward, and outward symbol. And Pastor Jamie preached a few weeks ago uh, of that. We, we've continued to kind of use that theme to simplify the process of discipleship. As we focus upward, God changes us inward, and then we live it outward. And so this morning, I want to take a closer look at discipleship at what it means to be a follower of Jesus and how, how we can be more deten- uh, intentional living as a disciple. So um, we've talked before about, you know, things like mission and vision, and I'm taking a leadership management conf- uh, class now where they've, they've delved a little deeper into these things. And as part of that, we had to look at our mission, our vision, our culture, and our practices, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through that with you because this is important. This kind of provides you with the, the DNA, with who we are, with our values, what's, what's important to us. And so our mission or what we do, the purpose for our existence, you see, to be and make disciples. And obviously, you know, that's, what, that's the command that Jesus gave us, the Great Commission. And so that's our goal, to be and make disciples. And I think it's important that we realize that that's twofold, that, you know, a lot of times most of our energy is focused on our own walk and just being a follower of Jesus, but a healthy disciple makes disciples. So the, the, the process perpetuates itself. And so we don't want to just get to the place where everything is just feeding us and, and living isolated, but we want to be intentional about who are we discipling? Who are we now pouring into? And so we're going to kind of look at that process a little bit deeper. But So that's our mission. The mission is our purpose, to be and make disciples. Then our vision is what it looks like when our mission succeeds. What, what is the, the vision? What do we think it's supposed to look like if we're all living that out? And so we've said this. We say we want to be an authentic, transparent, Christ-centered community. And again, these aren't just phrases. You know, words are, are the best way we can describe this, this idea of what we, we want us to be. So authentic, transparent, Christ-centered community. We've also said it this way. We want to be a place where you're loved enough to stay and challenged enough to grow. Where, where both of those things are true, where you're loved enough to stay, where you feel comfortable, where you feel at home, but you're also, you know, made a little uncomfortable. You're also challenged enough to grow. So mission, to be and make disciples, vision, to be an authentic, transparent, Christ-centered community. Then our culture, that's our core values. What makes us up? What's our character? And we've used the uh, acronym PICS, P-I-C-S, prayer, integrity, commitment, and servanthood. We think those are the things that embody a disciple of Jesus, that if you're a follower of Jesus, that prayer is important to you, that you walk in integrity. Integrity just means what you see on the outside is the same thing on the inside. We've talked about removing the mask and that type of thing. And then commitment. Are you committed to the local body? Are you committed to Christ? And then if you are, then you serve servanthood. And finally, our practices, our behaviors, which is what we do and how we do it. So what are, the, what are the rituals? What are the things that we do? And we use the word ritual. We don't like that sometimes. We don't like, you know, the idea of liturgy and the old ways that uh, church used to happen. There would be certain practices. But this, okay, practices are habits, and those things can be good. And we've talked about that can change you more than what you know, the way you behave, the, the things that have your affection. And so our practices, our behaviors, we talk about loving God. And that happens on Sundays. That happens in private devotional disciplines. We talk about loving people. That best happens in community groups. We're going to talk more about that. But that loving people is not just the day-to-day, hey, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Oh, okay. I love you. Love you too. Oh, okay. 
You know, that's easy to do. Loving people means being invested in their lives. And, and that happens in community groups. And finally, serving the world. And we do that through our ministries, internal and external service and mission support. So again, our goal together is to build an authentic, transformational Christian discipleship community. It's not my goal. It's our goal. It's our goal as a church body. Hopefully, that's why you're here, to be, as we keep talking about, to be fully known and fully loved by God and by others. And so that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about what it looks like where we're intentional in being a discipleship community. Amen? At this time, we'll dismiss our kids to South Coast Kids. Father, we thank you so much for all the kids, for the next generation, God. We pray that they're excited as they go and hear more about you and the plans you have for their lives. Bless them as they go. In Jesus' name, amen. Simone, I was asked to, to share a little bit about my past with a, with a men's group, about maybe 40 guys there. And, uh, and I talked for a while, I, I shared, you know, a little bit about my past and, and my faith journey, my life journey, and then after that, it was a little question and answer uh, period. And, uh, and one of the, you know, they're all good questions, most of the guys there were Christians, they weren't all Christians, um, but one of the guys said, you know, in, in your recovery, besides, you know, your faith, obviously, you know, faith in God and, and the spiritual component, they said, what would you say was the, the next... Um, most significant thing in terms of success and recovery and really just success as being a, a disciple. And I didn't even have to think. It just came out instantly. I, I didn't even process the question. I just said, authentic community. Just like that. Because it, it, it's been so powerful and so transformational and without a doubt has made the biggest impact in my life. And, you know, yes, it is the hands and feet of, of Christ, it is God himself. But how is he, he made manifest in our lives? Most of the time, through other people. Through people, you know, you hear the phrase, you know, a true friend runs in when everyone else is running out. When everyone else is running away, a true friend runs toward you. And so, you know, I don't stand here and talk about groups and community groups so we can say, oh, we have this many people in community groups, we have this many people attend, and, you know, when people say, oh, it's not about numbers, of course it's about numbers, because those numbers represent souls, and what we do, we're in the soul business, amen? And so I want you to grow and mature in your faith. This is, this is kind of a good indicator. In a church setting or in a small group setting, if I say to you, hey, how are you doing? And you answer that question just based entirely on what's going on around you, there might be a lack of spiritual depth. You, you might be judging what's going on in your life, how you're doing the same way the world does, which is if things are pretty good in my life, then I'm doing good. If things are bad in my life, then I'm doing bad. But we got to get to that place where when we're walking with Christ, that even when we're, we're facing trials and difficulties, that we consider it pure joy because Christ is with us. That we get to that place where you say, you know what, having a rough time, you know, I'm, I'm in the valley, but I'm praising him. Or I've, as I shared before, I have a brother, a good friend of mine used to say, I'm between mountaintops. He was never in the valley. He was just between mountaintops. What an optimistic way to look at life. And so again, authentic community. I was part of a community where people were real and where people were invested in one another. Now that's a hard thing to do. 
That's, and I understand the difficulty, and especially, you know, grow up, it's so funny, I'll tell a story. Growing up in New England, I didn't realize kind of how compartmentalized we were, and I remember my sister, I think, was living in Ohio, and, and we, we pulled in to visit her, and within like five seconds, like four of the neighbors came in the house, and they were like, oh, you know, we saw you had a car in the driveway, and, you know, they leave, and I'm like, I look at my sister, and I'm like, what is wrong with these people? They're all crazy, and she's like, no, they're really nice. <laughs> it's like, I'm just so, I, we, I think we lived for 20 years, and I didn't know the guy on the side of me, like, we, I don't know who that is. Well, New Englanders, we just, you know, we're all set, we do our own thing. But, you know, so I know it's moving out of our comfort zone, whether it's because you're a New Englander, or whether it's just because that's how you've lived, but the reality is when you're willing to be a little, you know, I, I think the reason that, that South Coast continues to grow and the reason that, that we're, we're exhibiting some healthy behaviors of a church is because, you know, Jamie and I, by nature, are transparent. We're willing to be vulnerable, willing to say, hey, look, this is where I struggle. This is where I struggled. This is where I had some victory. And, and we're on this journey with you together. And when you do that, when you're willing to be a little bit vulnerable and a little bit transparent, people are going to do that in kind. And the Holy Spirit works in a real special way in that kind of a place. So authentic community. Now, I should be able to just say Christian community. Unfortunately, just because there are a bunch of Christians, that does not necessitate, though it should really, but it doesn't necessitate authentic. It doesn't necessitate transformational or grace-filled, or truth-telling, or serving. Authentic, the word, if you define it, it means this. Conforming to an, to an original so as to reproduce essential features. This is just a dictionary definition, but think of the theological implications as we try to conform into the image of Christ. Genuine, real, made or done the same way as an original. You know, when the Bible says we're ambassadors for Jesus, an ambassador is somebody who has the authority to speak for someone else. It's like you're standing in the place of that person. You have all the rights and privileges they do. So authentic to reproduce essential features. If people look at our lives, do they see that in us? Do they see the characteristics of Christ himself? Koinonia means communion, joint participation, it identifies the idealized state of fellowship and unity that should exist in the Christian church. And you see it in Acts 2, verse 42 through 47. I'm going to read this because this is, this is sort of the blueprint. This is, this is what a healthy church should look like. And then we're going to look deeper at two components, at what loving God looks like and what loving people looks like in, the, in this sense. So it says, and they devoted themselves Devoted. They were committed. It wasn't just something they did casually. They didn't show up once a month. They were devoted. This was important to them. And I know, you know, and I'm, again, I'm not, I'm not picking on you because I can't help but, you know, pick on myself every time, you know, people will ask me, you know, do you want to lose weight? And I'll, and I'll, I'll stop saying yes. Because it's, it's ridiculous to say, yes, I want to lose weight when I've done nothing. I, I like the idea of losing weight. I mean, it sounds good, but I don't really want to do it. I mean, I don't really want to do anything. I don't want to go to the gym. I don't, you know, I lift weights if they weren't so heavy. That's kind of my motto. People say, do you run? I'm like, when I'm being chased, other than that, no. But I can't, you, you know, I, I have to move to the reality of going, if I really wanted to do it, if it was important to me, then I, I would make changes. Because let's face it, we make time for what's important in our lives. We all have 24 hours in a day. We make time for what's important in our lives. 
And that's true, and it hurts to say, and it, you know, it hurts me because the reality is we have to look at what we say are our priorities versus what are our actual priorities. We can't be self-deluded here. You know, my father used to say, before he became a Christian, and then when he became a Christian, it was that much more profound and true, but he used to say, figure out what you want out of this life. And every decision you make, every step you take, are you moving closer or further away from that? And, and if you think of that in a spiritual sense, every decision you make is that taking you one step closer or one step further away from your relationship with God. And so they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to scripture, to the word of God, and the fellowship. And this is that word koinonia. It doesn't just mean a superficial relationship. It means a communion, a joint participation. Later we see that they sell everything and everybody has it in common, so there's no need among them. Now, if you're here and you're like, well, I have a lot of stuff. That's not good. I don't want to do that. And if you're here and you say, well, I don't have anything, so that would be great. Let's do that. That's not the point. The point is that they were so identifying themselves within terms of the community that they were a part of that it was less of me and more in us. That they were willing to say, what can we as a community do to begin to live this out? It had problems because they're sinful. And right away you see, you know, the widows were complaining they didn't get food on this side. And so, again, we're not... You know, we can't escape our sinful condition. But can you imagine having the notion, having the idea of saying, you know what, we're going to be so united and so committed that there's not going to be a single need among us. And I mean, that's what we try to do. We have the Barnabas ministry. The Barnabas ministry was started because people said, hey, there's needs in the body. There's people struggling. Let's try and meet those needs. So this fellowship, this koinonia, this is, this is being invested in each other's lives. This is not just a superficial Sunday. This is a community group. This is a during the week. This is not a compartmentalized faith. To the breaking of bread. Again, there's an intimacy there. When you invite somebody to your house to have dinner with your family, that's a significant thing. That's not something you just do with anyone. There's a level of, of getting to know them more. There's a level of, of friendship and intimacy that comes with that. And the prayers, last but certainly not least. So these are things they were devoted to, to the word of God, to commitment to each other, to fellowship, to intimate relationship, breaking of bread, and to prayers. And awe came upon every soul. See, this is the part we want. We want the awe upon every soul, the many signs and wonders were being done. We want all that, but we don't want to commit to the, to the kind of community that necessitates those things. All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions, possessions and belongings and distributing as any had need. And listen to this. Day by day, attending temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. They weren't frustrated. They weren't reluctant. They weren't doing this out of compulsion. They wouldn't be like, oh, we've been coming to this church for so long now. I'm so tired. We've been reading the word and we've been giving the people. And what about me? No. They had glad and generous hearts, it said, praising God and having favor with all the people. And then, look, this is a promise. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. See, we want the church to grow, we want the community to grow. But we have to invest in one another. We have to be committed to one another, to this local expression of God's body. Koinonia. It means life together. It means a common life. 
It means communion between particular groups. Elsewhere in the Bible, we see the most remarkable instance was that between Jews and Gentiles. It means there wasn't a separation, but now there's a coming together by the body and blood of Jesus. It means sharing in divine revelation with God himself in 1 John 1, verses 1 through 7. And we're going to look at this deeper too, what it means to be spiritually connected to God. And then connecting with Christ, we're going to read John 15, and connecting with each other, we're going to read Mark 2. So this shouldn't be, this shouldn't be exceptional. This should be common. When I say Christian community, I shouldn't have to say authentic, transformational, Christ-centered Christian community. But I should just say Christian community, and it should indicate all those things. But we have to add all these adjectives so people know what you're describing. Because if you say Christian community to a whole bunch of people out on the street, what are they going to say? Ask 10 people that don't know Jesus. What do you think of Christians? Kind and generous is probably not going to be on the top 10 list. Right? But we want to change that. God exists in community. He created us for fellowship with him and for with one another. And so these community groups are where the day-to-day Christian living takes place. There's, you know, 150, 200 people connected to South Coast Church. Another 100 guys are so connected to Teen Challenge. I wish... With all my heart, I had time to get to know everybody as good as I could and to get to know everybody, you know, deeper and, and be friends with everybody. But it's impossible. It's impossible for Jamie to do that. I preached the other day on the Lord being the good shepherd. The good news is that Jesus knows you as close as anybody can know you. He knows everything about you. You are fully known and fully loved by Christ. And so when we're under shepherds, there's a comfort in knowing that that happens through your relationship with Christ, and that should also happen within the context of the local uh, community group, so that if you're going through something, or if people don't see you for a while, that somebody reaches out and say, hey, you know, how you doing, brother? How you doing, sister? I haven't seen you. Are you going through something? And can walk with you. John Piper said this. He said, God has given the pastors to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ in Ephesians 4. So he said, I believe in what I do, but I also believe that it is not enough. I believe in what I do. I believe in preaching. I believe in Sunday mornings, but I also believe that it's not enough. I also believe that you're going to be stunted in your spiritual growth if this is 99% of your food when it should be like 9% of your food. Here are the seven reasons why he says groups are essential. Because we have an impulse to avoid painful growth by disappearing safely into the crowd. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Because there's an impulse to avoid painful growth by disappearing safely into the crowd. You know, we've made it so you could go to a church for 10, 20 years and nobody knows you. You know, you come week after week and you, you know, you stand and you sit and you raise your hand and you sing the songs and nobody knows who you are. My friend likes to say, who's a pastor, he said, you know, there's some people who have been a Christian 50 years and there's some people that have been a Christian a year 50 times over. Haven't matured, hadn't really changed. They've just been going through the same cycle. Number two, the tendency toward passivity in listening to a sermon. In other words, just listening to it as information, not allowing it to transform you and not saying, okay, how, you know, how does this speak to me? How do I respond to this? What do I need to do to apply this in my life? But instead, just sitting back. And, and again, passively, not, not, uh, not having a personal application. 
He says this, number three, listeners in a big group can more easily evade redemptive crises. If tears well up in your eyes in a small group, wise friends will gently find out why. But in a large, larger gathering, you can walk away from it. Again, there's, there's, there's no sense of belonging, of responsibility, of intimacy. Listeners in a large group tend to neglect efforts of personal application. The sermon may touch a nerve of conviction, but without somebody to press on that, it can easily be avoided. Five, opportunity for questions leading to growth. Again, that's what we talked about with Wednesdays. You can't really, I mean, you could, I suppose, stop me and ask me a question, and if it was a one, you know, a quick thing, I'd answer it. But the reality is this is not set up for a, a back-and-forth interaction. And I don't know about you, I love school. I've always loved school. I love learning. But I learn best when they break us into small groups and we talk to each other. I don't learn best when somebody just sits there and spits out information. I mean, we have the internet. We can listen to the brightest people on the planet speak. So we don't, you know, that, you know, you sit there for four or five hours in a class and you just have a teacher. I mean, you know, I know that's part of the process and we kind of have to deal with that. But the reality is that's not ideal to learning. At some point, you just tune out. Some of you are tuning out now. Hopefully not. Just kidding. Number six, accountability for follow through. So if I said to you, and I'm not saying this clearly, if I said to you, I want to lose weight, then maybe next week you'd say, Pastor Brian, how are you doing about that weight loss thing? There's accountability because you're going to keep asking. If you're walking with people in a small group and you say, hey, these are the things I'm struggling with, you know, hold me accountable, or you invite people to hold you accountable, there's going to be that level of accountability, that level of responsibility. You're not going to get that in a larger group. And then prayer support, finally, for a specific need or conviction or resolve. How many blessings we do not have because we are not surrounded by a band of friends who pray for us. And he closes by saying this. I don't think it's an optional add-on to basic Christian living. I think it's a normal, healthy, needed New Testament Christianity. I think that that's absolutely true. When you read the New Testament, the the temple wasn't just part of spiritual life. It was just part of life. It was part of social life. And now we have our work life, and we have our home life, and we have our friends, and we have our church folks. You know, you have a been with somebody and they're introducing you and you're like, oh, this is my church friend. What is, what is that qualifier? I'm not a real friend. Is that better than a real friend? Is that less than a real friend? What is that? A church friend. I don't know. What is that? Right? We have, because we have compartments and we don't want them to meet. Oh, I don't want to have a party with my church friends and my real friends. That would, the world would explode. We can't do that. We can't bring the heathens together with it, right? So we have like church parties and then we have non-church parties and I don't want to know what goes on in the non-church parties. Don't tell me about it. Listen, this should be a priority for us. We should want to grow spiritually. And I understand it's not going to be comfortable. And I understand we, we don't, you know, and I'm not saying rush into vulnerability. But you should have a few people in your life that you can tell everything to. You should believe it's possible, even in our flawed humanity, to exist in a life-transforming community. You know, I don't remember where I read this, and I've mentioned it quite a few times, but... There's only two ways to meet needs in any society. And one is financial. So you, can, you, you have the resources to meet all your needs yourself. And the other is the community meets the needs. And as we've, been, as we've become more successful financially and more independent, so you could, I mean, you could literally work from home and your checks are automatically deposited and you get your groceries from Peapod and you get everything else from Amazon and you never leave the house. 
You haven't left the house in years because you have everything brought to you. And in that, you've lost one of the, one of the main things that it means to be a human being. Relationship. And so when, when we, the more we are able to meet all of our needs, the more that we have the independence and the resources, the less reliant we are with one another. Now, we can't go backwards. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that we need to be aware of the relational deficit in our lives. Because when you, when you talk to people and when they do studies and when they see what's the biggest, I think I have a quote, but what's the biggest problem facing the West? It's loneliness. When they interview people and say, you know, what's the biggest lack in your life? What's the biggest problem you're facing? People say that they're lonely. You know, you can have all kind of people around you. You can be on a train. You can be anywhere. But you could, you could still be lonely. You could still be isolated. You know, look at 10 people in a waiting room in a doctor's office, and everybody's on their phone. Nobody even looks up. John Milton, loneliness was the first thing that God's eye named not good. First in the Bible, not good for man to be alone. And this fellowship, this spirit-filled serving others above ourselves living is both fulfilling and it's liberating. And incidentally, it's what Jesus expects from his followers. It's not the rare exception. It's what it's supposed to look like. Our ability to efficiently produce and communicate has become more important than what we or why we are producing. Understand that? We become more and more efficient at doing what? What are we efficient at? Rushing to death? What are we efficient at? I was reading a book for school, and it says we spend more money per year on advertising, which is convincing people to buy stuff they don't really need. That's what advertising is. Sorry if you're an advertising executive. Then we do an education. We spend more money on advertising, which is trying to convince people to buy stuff they don't need, than we do on education in this country. Think about that for a minute. We have our priorities mixed up. And so we're telling people that husband and wife both each need to work 60 hours a week to be, keep buying the latest gadget, and we don't stop to realize that what we're missing is not stuff, but what we're missing is friendships. What we're missing is community. And I understand when you say, you know, I wish I had time to go to a group, but I don't have time because I'm working 60 hours a week. Or I'm, I get it. My kids are in 10 different things. I get it. I don't understand. You, and my kids, you know, they're in the things. They've all done the things, basketball and all that. But it, it, even when you have your kid do, like, one thing, it's not just, like, once or twice a week. It's, like, 10 times a week, every little thing. I'm like, what is it? I don't understand what they expect. We get emails from the people. It's like, make sure the kid's there. And da, 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 da. It's, she's not going to be a, you know, world-famous singer. She's just doing singing lessons. It's fun. But everybody's so serious. Everybody, we got to, you know, all this time, all this energy spent and then all this time and all this energy neglected on the most important thing, our spiritual relationship with God and our real relationship with each other. The two greatest commandments are love God and love others, not say you love God and say you love others, because sometimes I think that's what we think. The two greatest commandments are to say, tell everybody I love God and tell everybody I love other people. But if people look at my life, what do they see? How can we love God if we don't know how to love anyone else? So here's the formula. And we have to each do our part alone so that when we come together, we can do our part. Look at your neighbor and say, I will do my part. Two of you, that's good. Two people are going to do their part. All right. Thank you.
Together, if we do this, discipleship will happen. Community will happen. All you got to do is show up. You don't have to show up and be a theologian. You don't have to show up and have all these good questions. You don't have to show up and pray out loud. You, all you got to do is show up. Just show up. You can show up and be quiet week after week. Eventually, you're going to say something, and then you're going to say something else, and eventually you're going to be like Sue Royder praying out loud all the time now. Right? I remember when people were uncomfortable and people, but you'll grow. You'll see the significance. You'll see that when you step out of your comfort zone, that you make an impact on other people. And when you see that begin to happen, it feels good. Man, God's using me. I didn't think God could use me. Listen, if he can use me, he can use anybody here. Trust me. So John 15, this is what it looks like when we connect to, when we stay connected to Jesus. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, we understand that, and I don't want to spend too, too much time on this because I want to get through the whole thing, but we understand that. So, you know, if, if you're not bearing fruit and you're supposed to bear fruit, he takes that away. That seems fair. This next part doesn't seem fair. I'm being honest with you. I don't like this. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. That just seems a little ridiculous, doesn't it? I mean, if I'm bearing fruit, leave me alone, right? Look at all those other people not bearing any fruit at all. Deal with them. I'm over here bearing a little bit of fruit. That's not what it says. Because I've said this again and again and again. God is more concerned with your growth than your comfort. He allowed Jesus to go to the cross for a greater good. You don't think he's going to allow a little difficulty in your life for the greater good? He wants you to grow much more than he wants you to be comfortable. Now, the cool thing is that some part, it doesn't get easier. I mean, it's not necessarily comfortable. But at some part, you begin to at least understand the process and go, well, he hasn't left me. I know he's with me. And he's put some really cool people in my life, and I feel like I'm changing and I'm growing, even if it's just a little bit. But you got to show up. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Because, hello, it's not about you. Oh, I shouldn't say that. It's not just about you. Because it is about you for about a minute. But once you get saved, why doesn't God just take you up into heaven? Boom, problem solved. You're going to heaven. Why? Because he wants to use you and he wants to use me. Because the Bible says he doesn't want anyone to perish. But all to come to life, all to come to know him. Already you are clean because the word that I have spoken to you abide in me and I in you. The branch cannot, branch cannot bear fruit unless by itself unless it abides in the vine. And neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. What is Jesus saying? I mean, we can do some things. We know that. But we can't do anything lasting. We can't do anything eternal. We can't do anything of ultimate significance apart from him. If you're investing just in material things, just in the worldly things, and you're not investing in kingdom things, then it's all going to burn. So we say at Teen Challenge, it's kind of a joke because people say it all the time. Somebody will like pull in with like a Porsche, pull in the, and somebody will look at it and be like, man, I want that car. And somebody else will be like, it's all going to burn. That's what you say when you can't afford nice stuff you want. <laughs> it's all going to burn. 
Abide in me and I in you. The branch cannot bear fruit by itself. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. That's a promise. He doesn't say whoever bears much fruit. I abide with them because that's what we think sometimes. Well, I want to be connected to Jesus, so I need to do all this religious stuff, and then I'll be connected to him. And Jesus doesn't say that. In fact, he says the opposite. You see, the church tells the world, come and be part of us, and then, you know, your behavior will change, and God will love you. I mean, I'm sorry, come and change your behavior, and then, you know, be part of us, and God will love you. And Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says, come be part of me. Come follow me. Come find your rest in me, and then I'm going to change you from the inside out. As a result of that relationship, things in your life are going to change. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you be much fruit and prove to me to be my disciples. Jesus is saying, God gets glory and you prove to the world that you're a follower of Jesus when you abide in him. And that, that word abide, it means to remain. It's, not, it's, not, it's dynamic. It's not one time. It means that I make adjustments. I look, and when Jesus isn't on the throne of my life and something else is, that I, I, I behave accordingly. I adjust accordingly and make sure that he's the most important thing in my life. And Jesus says this, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I love when, when stuff like that's in the Bible because you almost have to do a double take and be like, wait a minute, if I follow these rules and I do all this stuff that I'm supposed to do, then I'm going to have joy? Because the enemy's convinced me that that's not the case, that the opposite's the case, that I get joy when I do whatever I want. Let me know how that works out for you. So I lived 35 years trying to do whatever I wanted. Didn't work. I don't know anybody. I haven't met anybody that's worked for yet. In uh, Ecclesiastes, Solomon writes, fear God and obey his commands. After he goes down this journey and tries to find his worth and his meaning in everything under the sun, and women, wine, and song, the world, the world hasn't changed, same thing. After all that, he says, fear God and obey his commandments. Have a reverence for God, understand who God is, and do what he tells you to do. That's the whole the whole point of life. That's what he says. This is my commandment, Jesus closing, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then he demonstrates that love in the next verse. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. If that doesn't qualify him to speak into your life, if that doesn't explain to you that this is somebody who's not giving lip service to love, but this is somebody whose life was an expression of ultimate love, we should listen to what he has to say. Sometimes we focus on the bearing fruit that leads to self-effort-driven spirituality. But if instead we focus on Christ, we will bear spiritual fruit. That is the promise. Because the Bible says Christ is building his church. Not Brian, not Jamie, and not even SCCC. But we get to be a part of it. We get to be used by him and allow him and others in our lives and allow ourselves to enter into the lives of others. And that's hard, mainly because we're afraid of rejection. Again, we go back to that idea of being fully loved and fully known. We think they're mutually exclusive. If anybody really knows me, they couldn't possibly really love me. Even though we have a God who does just that. 
There's a story of John Ortberg, one of, the, one of my favorite teaching pastors. And some of you may have heard this before. But he was, you know, struggling spiritually, just going through some things. And he was dealing with the verse where it says, you know, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. And, and he had a couple people in his life, but he had one guy in particular that he was really close to. He'd been friends with him for 30 years. And, and so, you know, a, a counselor that he was talking to had kind of encouraged him. He said, well, do you have any one person in your life that you can sort of tell everything to? And he thought about it, and he's like, you know, I don't know. He goes, I tell you know, my wife most stuff, but, you know, I don't know if I've told anybody everything. And the guy said, well, would you ever consider doing that? And so Orberg thought about it, and, he, you know, at first he's uncomfortable. And then he starts just writing down everything he wants to say, everything, going back to his childhood, sort of all the things he had done and all the, all the baggage, all the ugliness in his life. And he got to the point where he didn't even think he was going to necessarily give it or read it to the guy. It just was, became cathartic and therapeutic, and so he continued to do it. And finally he gets to the end, he's got like 30 or 40 pages of just junk. And, and kind of almost second-guessing himself, he, he sends it off to his friend. And his friend calls him up and he said these words. He said, John, I have never loved you more than I do right now. And he said that was the most freeing, most beautiful thing he had ever heard in his life. Because he was so sure that if anybody really knew all the ugly stuff, they'd run as far as they could. Now, I'm not suggesting, you've got to be very careful. You have to have somebody who's a, a mature believer and who's f- friends with you. I'm not suggesting we all rush into this. But I do suggest that you look for relationships where you begin to tell people about your struggles, about your life. That, that sense of, of being prayed for and being healed, that's a spiritual healing. Because the stuff that you bring in the light, the enemy can't use that anymore. The enemy can't say, well, I know you show up at church. I know you think you're a Christian. But if everybody knew this about you, they'd run the other way. But once you confess that, once you tell somebody, the enemy, it's not in the dark. The enemy can't use that. It's freeing. One of the biggest problems in the church today is people can just up and shop for another church. I hear people, and there are some spiritual reasons for leaving a church. But I hear people about leaving churches, and listen, as much as I love everybody, you're not mine to keep. I mean, you want to go somewhere. People have said to me before, well, for whatever reason, hey, listen, as long as they're preaching the word of God, praise God, go and, and grow and w- whatever. But as, as a pastor who cares about your maturity, when I hear people leaving for silly reasons, I just think they're going to hop around from church to church for 20 years, and nobody's going to ever get to fully know them. And they're not ever going to get to fully know anyone else. And it's always going to be superficial. Because it's scary to be known. And what if God's using you and then you leave? I know God can use us anywhere. But there's something about a committed group. About a commitment to one another. How are you growing spiritually? How are you not remaining immature if every time your job, you're, you get a boss that you don't like, or you're in a relationship with someone you don't like, or you, go to, you do the same thing your whole life. You keep leaving, but there you are, wherever you go. And it's always everybody else. Think about it. Maybe God's trying to speak to you. The greatest disease in the West today is not tuberculosis or leprosy. It is being unwanted, unloved, and uncared for. We can cure physical diseases with medicine, but the only cure for loneliness, despair, and hopelessness is love. 
There are many in the world who are dying for a piece of bread, but there are many more dying for a little love. The poverty we have in the West is a different kind of poverty. It's not only a poverty of loneliness, but it's a poverty of spiritual spirituality. There's a deep hunger for, God, for love, and there's a deep hunger for God. There is power in living in faith-filled, life-giving, committed-to-each-other community. Mark 2. I'll give you a minute. If you, if you have the church Bible, you can yell at the page. Well, 95. No, that doesn't sound right. 995, okay, I was going to say. I don't know if all the books memorized exactly like that, but I knew it's not, yeah. When Jesus returned to Capernaum seven days, several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room, even outside the door. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. Now, can you imagine this? First of all, I, I doubt very strongly that this was, this was the first time these guys had done this. What great friends. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd. So they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Why not? Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Now, first of all, these guys showed up. And these guys showed up and they were invested because they're carrying them. And then... As if that weren't enough, they get there and there's too many people, so they don't be like, hey, we tried, bro. We'll see you next week. No, they're like, how are we going to? We have to get our friend to Jesus. We got to do whatever it takes to get our friend to Jesus. Most of them would have been like, hey, we'll show up next time he preaches. I mean, there's, you know, standing room only now. See ya. Well, they were persistent. They lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. I like how it says that. Not like off to the side where Jesus is like, hey, what's going on there? No, like right in front of him. Seeing their faith, seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to him, my son, your sins are forgiven. Whose faith did he see? Was it the paralyzed man? Or was it the faith of his friends because they were standing and fighting for this man when he couldn't stand and fight for himself? You see, real friendship, real friends, are those people who say, you know what, come on, just show up. I'll pick you up. Just come to church. I know you don't want to go, but just come. Real friends are those people who say, you know, I know you're going through stuff, and I know you want to stay away, but you need to get to Jesus right now, and we're going to do whatever it takes to bring you to him. Real friends are those people when you're like, I give up. I don't even know if I, I, don't even know if I want to do this anymore. Where they say, you know what, we're going to pray for you. Even when you don't have faith, we're going to pray for an increased measure of faith. We're going to pray for an appetite for God. We're going to pray for you. And of course, the religious people, verse 6. But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Like at some point you think Jesus would have just been like, poof, you're all dust. Like, I mean, they just, they just follow him around, annoying him constantly, all the time. Like, you know, he's healing people and they're compl- like, really? 
the religious people. Now, again, I'm, I'm not going to hop on this, but they knew the right things. They didn't have a knowledge problem, right? It's important that we know that because, again, we think of discipleship purely as what you know. But the Pharisees didn't have a knowledge problem. They had a heart problem, and they had an application problem. They thought religion was all about making them look better, and some people still think that, and it's not. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking, so he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Because he knows that it's always in the heart. Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked out through the stunned onlookers. And they were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, we've never seen anything like this before. Every day we find ourselves actively engaged in crowds. Again, we have the work crowd, the school crowd, the crowd associated with the activities of our kids, the church crowd. And it's easy to confuse our associations within these crowds with the experience of community. It's easy to, it's easy to do that. It's easy to think because you have 3,000 Facebook friends that you're, you're, you're well-liked and well-known and that you have a lot of relationships. But that's not the translation. How many people really know right now in your life, what you struggle with. If you're going through something, how many people really know that? How many people do you know what they're going through right now at this moment? How many people can you pick up the phone and be like, you know, I just want you to know that I love you, I'm thinking of you, and I know you're going through whatever it is, but I'm praying for you. And then when's the last time you did that? Because crowds are pseudo-communities. They kind of look like communities, and sometimes they kind of act like communities, but they're not. They're crowds. For them to be communities, you have to be willing to be known, and you have to be willing to know others. Don't live your life where all your relationships are experienced at a superficial level. Crowds are drawn together by activities rather than accountability and deeper meaning in life. Every crowd is defined by activities that draw us together. But crowds are limited because when people say, how are you doing? You say, fine. Everything's just fine. Everybody's fine. Even when they're dying inside and their kids are addicted, when their spouse is unfaithful, everything's fine. The one reason Americans are the loneliest they've ever been, according to the latest polls, that's, I'm sorry, that's one reason. Jesus lives in the intimacy of authentic community. Larry Crabb, a Christian psychologist, wrote this, and the worship team can come up. A central task of community is to create a place that is safe enough for the walls to be torn down, safe enough for each of us to reveal our brokenness. And here's the thing. And I love talking about like recovery and people have said before, you know, you talk about recovery a lot. You know why? Because every single person in this room is addicted to sin. And every single person in this room is in a process of recovery. And I don't know about you, but that sin keeps calling me back. And so I have to cling desperately to Jesus Christ to not be that old man instantly just like that. And the reality is 
that we're, perhaps we're all broken and perhaps we're all broken in different ways because sin's broken us, only Christ can heal us. And most of the time he does that within the context of a loving community. Philippians 2, 1 through 8, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. We are called to be united with Christ, to be like-minded, to have the same love, and to be one in spirit and purpose. And when we do that, God will show up individually in our lives and in our communities and radically transform the atmosphere around us. Amen? Please stand as we prepare to close. Father, we thank you for this word. And we thank you for this community you've created and for the opportunities for community you've created. And Father, I pray, particularly if there's anyone here who hasn't taken that step, who's maybe been coming to church for a little while, who's a believer, God, but who just, you know, lives in that isolation, is afraid to, to be vulnerable, is afraid to experience that community, that you prod and poke them, God, that you push them out of their comfort zone to experience a rich depth. Father, we thank you for the communities that we do have. We thank you for those of us who've been radically changed by them. And Father, as the coming weeks go and as we go through the training and as we talk about these groups, God, I pray that every single person in this room is signed up and begin to experience the relationship with you and the relationship with each of us, with one another that that you intend. Because you change us in the midst of those relationships. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.